Hi, this is Keith Law. Welcome to the Keith Law Show. It's April 13th. I'm going to be joined in a little bit by Eddie Bain, former scouting director of the Los Angeles Angels, longtime scout, former major league pitcher. Talk about some players he remembers well from his time, in the, especially on the amateur trail, from Mike Trout to Bill Binet names for that just some administrative stuff first of all you can download this podcast on itunes i believe it's on google podcast now spotify stitcher if you do so and the site allows you to uh, leave a rating really appreciate a five-star rating or a review share the podcast with your friends if you're enjoying it so far i also do have a book coming out now in just eight days april 21st the inside game will be out from william morrow and harper collins publishers you can pre-order the book on uh, just about anywhere you'd get books i am sending folks to bookshop.org because that is a fairly new site that has been set up to try to support independent bookstores so far they've already raised they claim they've raised nearly six hundred thousand dollars for independent bookstores so if you want to find an alternative to any of the big book vendors it's a great place to uh, to to buy all of your books. I've bought several from them, and I've also bought from some independent bookstores uh, directly as well to try to support them. Independent bookstores, I personally know. But anyway, the book is the inside game: bad calls, strange moves, and what baseball behavior teaches us about ourselves. Try to combine some concepts from cognitive psychology and behavioral economics to explain bad decisions or outright blunders from throughout baseball history by players, managers, coaches even by team executives. That'll be out on April 21st. I will have some virtual events around that, including one with Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg that is going to be this Thursday afternoon, I believe at 3 p.m. Eastern. And then on April 24th, I was supposed to appear live at Politics and Pros in D.C. Because I can't do that now, we're going to hold a virtual event through them, along with Sean Doolittle of the Washington Nationals, who is uh, maybe the most literate or literary baseball player probably the most literary baseball player he reads uh, obsessively which i of course appreciate very much because i also read obsessively john just a, a wonderful human being in addition to now a world series winning baseball player uh, he will also be joining me on april 24th at 7 p.m eastern you can follow me on twitter at keith law or facebook at keith law writer i will continue to post updates on those and any other events as we get closer to uh, the book release date on april 21st and beyond now it's my pleasure to be joined by Eddie Bain, former Major League Baseball pitcher, longtime executive with a number of clubs. If you know his name at all, it is probably because he was the scouting director for the Los Angeles Angels for seven seasons, during which time he drafted a high school outfielder from southern New Jersey named Mike Trout. Eddie, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, Keith, it's, it's good to be with you. Uh, tough times, but uh, you and I have known each other for quite a while and um, look forward to it. So let's start with uh, young Mr. Trout. And I know you and I have talked about him a couple of times, even recently. Last year was the 10th anniversary of you drafting Mike at the end of the first round. But uh, talk to, for listeners who don't remember any of those conversations, talk a little bit about your process in, in seeing Mike, and especially the work that I know Greg Moorhart, your area scout at the time, that he did just getting to know the kid and really banging the table for him is somebody who he thought was the best prospect in the draft class. Well, obviously started with Mo, but there's so many people with the Angels. You know, my two national cross-checkers, Rick Wilson, Jeff Malinoff, our East Coast supervisor, Mike Silvestri, just every Kathy Mayer, my assistant in the office there, just everybody deserves some amount of credit. And, uh, you know, it's and that's what goes into finding the best player in the world. Um, and uh, it happened to work. And, uh, you know, we got heat for taking two high school outfielders in a row in the draft and uh, 
taking a high school kid from New Jersey. What in the world are you thinking about? You know, we always thought that it was best to open up the entire process, and we knew where the best players came from, but you definitely don't eliminate people just because they're from New Jersey, and, and quite honestly, some people did. Yeah, I remember seeing Trout that spring. So for listeners who don't remember, that spring was extraordinarily rainy in the Northeast. So in addition to just general biases against high school position players from cold weather states, he had a short season to begin with. It was just pouring constantly. I got lucky. I got a sunny day, but the ground was still really wet, which I always wondered that maybe maybe he didn't run as well that day for me because the ground was so muddy. Um, but I remember in particular, like, what you just said that, that this idea, well, you took two high school outfielders in the first round, Randall Gritchick, the other one has turned out to be pretty good. Uh, you know, obviously not Mike Trout good, but pretty good major league career. He's got over 600 games. Your draft that year had produced one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight big leaguers. As far as I can see here, mm-hmm. Gritchick, Garrett Richards, Tyler Skaggs, who I still think had a lot of great things ahead of him. Um, unfortunately, and uh, all the way down to Patrick Corbin in the second round. He was your sixth player taken. Uh, He's already produced 17 wins above replacement. Also, I think still has a lot of production ahead of him. So it was a very, very impressive draft class. Two of of the guys who ended up making the big leagues didn't sign, but you just in terms of total selections, that's eight guys from your draft who ended up at least appearing in the big leagues, which is a pretty impressive haul. Well, yeah, Keith, it, 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 you know, you look back and, and, uh, you get pretty proud of some of that stuff. You know, Garrett Richards became the ace of the Angels staff before he got injured. Mm-hmm. And I saw Patrick Corbin with the Diamondbacks one time, and, and I had never compared anybody's slider to Steve Carlton. And I saw Patrick Corbin, and it was close. Uh, and this was after he had been traded to the Diamondbacks. You know, we really had it rolling there with the uh, with the Angels. We had – you know, three, four guys with plus power. You throw in Mark Trumbo, who ended up leading the American League in home runs one year, and Kinder mm-hmm. Morales. Uh, we had speed, Gene Segura. You know, we had signed internationally. Uh, Morales, obviously, in- internationally. So we really thought it was going to be rolling there. And uh, a lot of those guys got traded. You know, fortunately, Mike is going to look like he's going to stay in one place his entire career, which I think is awesome. You know, just getting to know Jeff and Debbie Trout and seeing the success the guy has had, we would have never predicted that. But there were some telltale things that came along after we signed him that indicated that he was going to be as good as he has become. And, you know, quite honestly, he's gotten better every year. Everybody keeps waiting for some kind of drop off and it just has not happened. One last question on Trout before we just talk about some other players uh, as well. That draft was the Steven Strasburg draft. Strasburg was, everyone said Strasburg was the number one player in the draft and obviously went first overall. He's had an excellent career so far. At the time, there was a real consensus, not unanimous, but real consensus. Well, Dustin Ackley is clearly the second best player in the draft class. (laughs) Yeah, which obviously hasn't worked out that well. And Ackley was also coming off an injury too. It's a little bit of a weird year it was weird for him to be the, the sort of so-called clear number two but you know you guys obviously saw both of those but i'm sure you knew actually wasn't going to get to your pick but do you remember a little more about your board i know you've told me trout wasn't necessarily the slam dunk number two on the board either but if i remember correctly you guys weren't as high on actually as the rest of the industry well there were a couple players keith um and my personal and i'm pretty paranoid my personal pref list i had Trout number two behind Strasburg, which I was wrong. <laughs> Mike should have been number one, but yep. uh, 
but I, and I tried to keep that to myself. I may have let Kathy Mayer know or a couple others, but I kept that pretty close to the vest, but there was a Donovan Tate was an outfielder in, in Atlanta and I went to see him play and uh, the team took batting practice before the game and every kid on the team hit a home run in BP except him. Right. <laughs> and I looked at our, I looked, I looked at our area scout, Chris McAlpin, and I said, uh, I don't, I'm not seeing it. And, uh, and I, and, and I went and saw Ackley and they said, well, he's a first baseman here at the university of North Carolina, but he's going to play center field in the major leagues. And I said, that's not the way it works. Um, you don't go from first base in college to center field in the major leagues. And I didn't see Ackley near as good as uh, other people saw him. And then they tried to make him a second baseman. Uh, he did not have good hands. Um, and, uh, and he wasn't quick around the bag, uh, things like that. And, you know, it, it, I, I broke him up probably a little bit because I knew we weren't going to get him. But uh, Tate was, it was pretty clear that, geez, I, I don't, I don't like this guy anywhere near like I like Mike Trout. So let's talk about some other guys who uh, who you've seen over a long career in scouting. When you and I talked about you possibly coming on the show the other day, you brought up the fifth overall pick from 1988, <laughs> Bill Binet from Cal State University, Los Angeles. And listeners have probably never heard of Bill Binet. It's B-E-N-E if you want, anyone wants to go look up his stats. Yep. You may want to shield your eyes when looking at the walk rates, but he was – really famous at the time and just never, ever panned out. So give us sort of your memories of seeing him and what he turned out to be. Well, Keith, that's, that's the perfect wake up call for me because I get all this publicity and credit and everything else for Mike, but you have to remember your mistakes also. And, and mine was one of my big ones was Bill Benet. He was at Cal state LA he played for a guy named John Herbal, who's a legend, uh, intelligent, had his doctorate in English literature from Stanford, but he was a baseball coach and he was, a he was quite honestly a lunatic. He'd yell and scream at his players and everything, but he got all of his players got better. But I was informed that Bill was going to be pitching in a JV game at Cal state LA. Now that's, that's about as far down the ladder as you can <laughs> go. But I said, well, I'm going. So I went to the JV game at Cal state LA and this guy was throwing 97, 98 miles an hour with life, big, long fingers, great body. And 97, 98 at that time, Keith, was probably 101 on the, on the new type radar guns who pick up the ball a little earlier. So I, I'm watching and I said, well, I got this. This is great. I, I've never seen anything like this. And, and uh, I didn't care that he was pitching on the JV team or any. All the signs were there that I should stay away, but I didn't pay any attention. And, uh, we got Bill Benet over Robin Ventura. That's who we could have had. And, uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's good. So we signed this guy and Dave Wallace is our roving pitching coach and he's become a great major league pitching coach and did a lot of great things. Well, Bill command and control was a 20 on the, our scouting scale, which is as low as you can go. So they couldn't, get his bullpens in the right way. So they got some mannequins from a local Macy's or pennies or someplace. And they put those, they put the mannequins in the, on, in, in the batter's box. So the next time I come back through Bakersfield, this mannequin's got holes all over it and holes in its head and holes in its ribs and holes. Cause Benet has <laughs> broken this mannequin up and, uh, Bill never got out of a ball. I don't think he even touched double a and he continued to throw hard, but he couldn't get it anywhere near the plate. 
So I thought it was nerves, and then I showed up another time, and he's singing the national anthem before the game, and and flawlessly. So he wasn't intimidated by crowds or anything. He just, uh, quite honestly, was not very good. And uh, all that taught me a good lesson that when people are giving you signs that they're not as good as they look, you need to pay attention. So it really helped me, but it was a really bad draft. And uh, I know I was not the scouting director, but I was very influential in the selection of Benet, and that was a huge mistake. The following year, Dodgers had a couple of first-round picks. The second of the first-round picks was Tom Goodwin, who had a nice little big league career. He's worth a little over eight war in his career and um, just a really quality fourth outfielder type. But your first pick that year is another infamous one, uh, Kiki Jones, right-handed pitcher from Hillsborough High School in Tampa, which produced a lot of big leaguers. And yet another highly touted pitcher who didn't pan out in in a – like you had a little run there with the Dodgers a couple of years of – high-profile picks who just didn't make it. Right. Yeah, well, you know, we ended up – we got Todd Hollinsworth, ended up being Rookie of the Year. We got yep. uh, Eric Karros was Rookie of the Year. We we did some other things, but our – you know, we got Jamie McAndrew in that draft also who touched right. the big leagues. But Kiki Jones was the guy. I mean, uh, Keith, this guy went out into the Pioneer League, which is was a basically a college league, and just tore it up. Mm-hmm. And I saw him, I saw him at Armwood High School in Florida, and he pitched against Sterling Hitchcock, who ended up being a nice big league yeah. pitcher. But nobody noticed Hitchcock that day. You know, <laughs> you wrote his name down, but it was Kiki ran out to the mound and did the flip a la Ozzie Smith. And he, he threw rockets and, but he was 5'10, 5'11, but he had long fingers. You know, you could really, he would have been a second round, I'd say, pick as a shortstop. Just tremendous athlete, plus-plus uh, curveball, command, feel, presence, everything. And uh, he went into the Pioneer League and just ate it up. And uh, he was as good a prospect. And as he was probably the best high school pitcher I ever saw perform. Huge velocity, everything. Like I said, presence, command, just you just fell in love with the guy when you saw him. But um, he had some mental issues in, in the back of his head. Uh, you know, the, that area had turned out Carl Everett and Doc Gooden. And uh, just, you know, they had a great high school coach there at, at Hillsboro. And, and they did a great job. And Kiki just the next next year, I, I went into Bakersfield. That's probably a place I should have stayed away from. I went into <laughs> Bakersfield and I I go down to the bullpen and, and Kiki's throwing a bullpen and he starts crying in the bullpen. And I went, wait, now this is this 19, 20 year old kid. I've never seen that any other time. And he was complaining about his arm hurt and his arm hurt and his arm hurt. And, and uh, he never came back after that and pitched successfully at all. Had some issues off the field, uh, tried to make several comebacks. But it just never came back. And that one, that one there, unlike Benet, I would bet on again. But I would have liked to have known more about his uh, mental makeup. But as far as just stuff and pitchability, usability, uh, all that stuff, Kiki had, Kiki had it all. And even you know, I've, I've signed now, I've signed quite a few short right-handed pitchers, uh, Chatwood and Rudy Cienes and some other guys that I don't like short right-handers, but 
when they throw like that and they can make it move and they can command the strike zone, I'm fine with it. But Kiki was the best high school pitcher I ever saw, probably. Wow. Yeah, and you've seen quite a few pretty good ones over your career. <laughs> now, after that, I've seen though, the guys in McDonald's and everything that everybody said were the best pitchers they'd ever seen in their life, and then they go out and they're okay. <laughs> now, a couple of years after that, though, dear, the Dodgers started to have some more success. Darren Dreifert, who obviously, when he wasn't hurt, was a very good pitcher. And then uh, I think it was the year after Dreifert, you took Paul Canerco, who's you know not quite a Hall of Famer. We call him the Hall of the Very Good. He had a heck of a career, yeah. a long career. Um, you would love, you know, sort of your memories of him, especially, I know at the time, at least he was supposed to be a catcher and there was talk of, you know, could he stay at the position? Obviously it turned out pretty well once he moved off the position, but what'd you see from Canerco once, uh, when he was an amateur, especially? Well, at the time I lived in, uh, I lived in the Phoenix Scottsdale area and that's where Paul's from. And my son, Jamie, who now works for the Mets and we worked together with the Red Sox and everything came home one day. He was 13, I think, or 14. And he came home one day and he said, dad, I just saw the best hitter I've ever seen. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, that's not a real big field. You're 14, (laughs) 13 years old. Uh, Great. Good deal. So I went uh, three or four days later and watched some batting practice with his team. Jamie was playing on and this. 13 year old kid was hitting balls all over the place. And, it, and it, obviously that was Paul. And I got to know Paul really well. And uh, the players I feel most close to uh, that I've ever signed are probably Paul, Mike and uh, Louis Medina. And, uh, but Paul was one of my favorite. I got to know Hank, his father really well. And Paul and I are still close. But anyhow, I, I just kept the name around and he went to Chaparral High School there in Scottsdale. And I just kept pushing and pushing for him. And uh, I was one of the national guys, but I got to have a lot of influence with the Dodgers at the time. And Tommy Mixon was our other national cross checker. And there was a kid in Georgia and Tommy had that Southern accent and he came into the they came in the middle of the season and Terry Reynolds was our scouting director. And he said, yeah, I really like this Canerco fella, but we got a boy here in Macon, Georgia, that's just as good and probably better named Mark Johnson. And, and I, I lost my mind. (laughs) This guy's nowhere near, you know, and Mark Johnson ended up catching in the major leagues, but he was obviously not, not Paul Canerco. And, uh, so we got Paul with the Dodgers and he started going through the organization and just tearing it up. And, and Mike Sosia gave him a lot of stuff about catching. And I was so stubborn that I wanted him to catch mm-hmm. and they saw things that I didn't see. And it was better for Paul to go play another position because he was such a good hitter that, you know, you hate to have a guy go right to first base because, there's no place else to go after first base, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So Paul went to first base, but he was still a, a great major leaguer because of his power and his bat and everything and, and just all the things that Paul brought to the table. And he went through the organization really quick and was ready to go to the major league. But the catcher in the big leagues was Mike Piazza. He wasn't going to replace Mike. And uh, even though Mike was not a good catcher either, Mike was a great hitter. And the first baseman was Eric Carlos and Tommy Lasorda loved both those guys. And uh, Tommy traded Paul when he became the GM and I was not happy. And he told, uh, 
he asked me what I thought of the trade. And I said, I thought it was the worst trade in the history of baseball. So <laughs> Tommy and I, uh, Tommy and I were not best of friends after that. And, uh, they, he got traded and then he, uh, he ended up with the white Sox, and all of a sudden there was a spot open for him and he became a star. And, uh, Mr. Reinsdorf put a statue of him in left center field after they won the world series. <laughs> so that tells you what kind of career that, uh, that Paul had. He's just, and just a wonderful human being. Hank, his dad, um, when I went in to sign Paul, his father is, uh, they have money. And his father said, Eddie, you're not going to fool me with some million dollar offer or something like that. We, I, I do this kind of stuff all the time. So I said, Oh, great. So I, we offered him whatever it was and got him signed and out. And Keith, he's in Yakima and I'm watching him play. And in the, he hits a double in the eighth inning of a tie game. And Joe Vavra, our manager, who's now a big league uh, coach, he pinch runs for Paul. And um, Paul comes running off the field. And I look down at Vavra, and I'm at the game in Yakima, and I wave to him and leave. The next day, Joe says, why did you take off? And I said, well, Joe, you've got one guy on your team that's going to have to run the bases in the major leagues. And you just took him out of the game. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't need to see, I didn't need to see all these other little Joey's run around the ballpark. So uh, as soon as you took Paul out, he's the only one that's ever going to have to run the bases in the major leagues. And he needs to continue to stay in the game. So I was biased obviously, but I, I think I was also correct. And, and Joe understood after I told him that, uh, Hey, I didn't need to see them other guys run. I need to see Paul play. So that that's my uh, Paul Canerco stories, and like I said, one of the finest human beings I've ever met in baseball. That's Joe Joe Vavra's son Tanner is Tan yep. right? He's a Tanner and Terran, right? That's that fa same family. Yep, yep. And what a good baseball guy. He's had got a lot of years now in the major leagues as a coach. Done some hitting stuff and everything, and and uh, we were both learning. But I was pretty arrogant, so. I shared my opinion with him, and <laughs> I think, as you know, Keith, some people would still call me arrogant. But that's uh, okay. yeah, it's not arrogant when you got the track record to back it up. Taryn Vavra, <laughs> by the way, for listeners who don't know, Taryn Vavra is a prospect in the Rockies system. He was, I think, a third-round pick a couple of years ago, a third-round pick in 2018. Yes, He's a pretty good-looking good. player. Yeah, really high IQ good player. Job. It's unsurprising. The last thing I wanted to ask you about when you and I were just talking the other day about this, you brought up seeing Chris Sale – I think you said 40 times as an amateur and I saw sale as well. And just was, I was so firmly in the camp that that delivery and that lack of a breaking ball, uh, when he was a Florida Gulf coast, that's a reliever. That guy can't possibly be a starter. And, and other people didn't mm -hmm. like how skinny he was, right? Just watch the arm work and how low the slot was. And like, well, you can't, there's not a slider in there and he can't throw one like that. Obviously things changed a little bit when he got into pro ball and I'm, you know, more than happy to admit I was wrong on that one, but you saw him a lot more than I did and just sort of curious your, your thoughts on him. And especially he changed quick too, between what we saw of him as an amateur a year later, less than a year later, he was in the big leagues already. It was, Oh, this is different than what I saw before. Yes. And, and, and the slight little adjustments made such a great deal with Chris. I, I saw him at Gulf coast and did like him a lot. And, you know, I go back to deliveries and stuff, Keith, and the, I, I remember watching one time a, a freeway series game between Jared Weaver and Clayton Kershaw. Mm -hmm. And Jared Weaver went down. His career ended, seemed like, quickly, but he was really good for a long time. And you would never teach 
Jared Weaver's delivery or Clayton Kershaw's delivery to a youngster. It's just <laughs> what they had and they, they work. Sometimes you have to look past that stuff. Well, anyhow, with Chris sale, counting all the times I saw him with the white Sox and everything, I probably had seen him 35 times and he was pitching for us in Fenway in 2018 mm-hmm. and in July. And this, this is probably the 35th, 40th time I've seen him. And I'm sitting right behind the radar gun guy who works for us in Boston there. And he's in the seventh inning throwing 101 miles an hour. I've never seen him throw like that. And the slider is just lights out and it's quick, hard, tight, everything you'd want, breaking both planes, anything you'd want. And I, after the game, I, I said, this is not good. He's, I don't know how you tell a guy not to throw hard, but he's throwing too hard. And um, maybe that stuff came to fruition where, you know, and, and I don't know the answer, Keith. I don't know how you tell a guy, hey, back it off. Um, but some people have that innate feel to back it off. Uh, Chris has shown that. But at that time, I just thought that was a little bit of a red flag. And I got looked at like I was crazy, but because I can understand, and I can understand that. What you're, you're trying to tell me he's throwing too good. It's like a, a, a scout told me one time that he didn't like Darren Dreifert because the ball moves too much. And I went, I've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the ball can move too much. It, when it moves too much, that's a good thing. Um, but, um, but anyhow, with sale, yeah, the, the arm angle thing and all that, I never, I never uh, want to eliminate anybody and I would never eliminate somebody just because of a delivery, but uh, it is one of the things you look at, but there's been too many guys in my book that have made it through with what you would not call the, what the old timers called the Spalding guide delivery. <laughs> That's Eddie Bain, longtime scouts, former scouting director for the angels. Now with the New York Mets, he's worked for the Red Sox, the Dodgers, Pitched in the big leagues a little bit as well. Eddie, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Oh, Keith, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Stay safe during this time and everybody else also. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by Research, who is developed to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Keith, K-E-I-T-H, at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Keith for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Keith. That's all for the show this week. Just before I sign off, I am trying to be a part of this athletic-wide effort to support local businesses during this shutdown, which is obviously going to go quite a bit longer. This week, I just wanted to mention some independent bookstores, tying into what I said earlier, shopping through bookshop.org. That's the easiest thing you can do if you want to support independent bookstores and continue to buy books. We're all home. 
I actually have not found I've had more reading time. Somehow I have less. I have other stuff going on too that's kind of keeping me busy, but that's okay. I'm still reading. Did finish Jose Saramago's The Double last night. I'm now reading one of the Inspector Maglay uh, mysteries from uh, George Seaman on a French author. I'm reading it in English. I'm not that good. And uh, and I'm still buying books, actually. And I have already bought books from Powell's in Portland, Oregon. I bought a book from the Silver Unicorn Bookstore in Acton, Massachusetts, run owned by former Fangraphs writer Paul Swyden. Uh, changing hands in Phoenix and Tempe. They are still open and taking mail orders. Uh, and I have continued to uh, uh, also to try to buy through them. I have, uh, I believe Parnassus Books in Nashville is still open taking mail orders. I was supposed to have live events the week of the book's release from Porter Square Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg, Politics and Prose in D.C. I'll have those virtual events through both of those stores and one more page in Arlington, Virginia. I haven't checked all of those sites to see if they're doing mail order, but I encourage you to do so. If you want to buy books – and you're trying to spend your money in a way that also maybe helps the community, which I'm trying to do with lots of things, food, coffee, and, and books in particular. Uh, those are all stores I would encourage you to check out. They're all stores, uh, with the exception of one more page, they're all stores I've actually personally been to at some point. One more page, I thought I was going there. I just haven't gotten a chance. I will when this is all over. So consider directing your book spending to any of those sites too. You'll help those stores be able to hopefully all reopen once this is over. That's all for this week's episode. Again, I'm Keith Law. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Law, on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. Thanks so much for listening.